Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wannabe Entrepreneur, the podcast about what's really like to bootstrap a company. And today we have another interview. Here with me is Hilary Black. Hey, Hilary. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's definitely my pleasure, uh, especially because we are going to be speaking about something that I find really interesting. Uh, so uh, Hilary is an entrepreneur and she has a lot of cool projects going on, but one that really caught my eye is uh, projects around uh, conversational design, so chatbots. That's super, super cool. I find it to be a very interesting technology that for some reason, and maybe I'm completely wrong, it seemed that kind of over-promised a little bit, and I don't see that much uh, in use. Well, we, we do see it sometimes in, in some bots, and you can order uh, some things of Facebook or WhatsApp, but I, I find that there's a lot to learn, a lot to know in this area. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to to speak with you, Hillary, about your, your career and also about uh, conversational design. Yeah, it is very interesting for you to sort of describe the opinion of chatbots because it is exactly correct that chatbots sort of came out and they flopped pretty hard. Um, and I think the public perception was very much like, well, these are just a fad that they're going to go away. And yeah. then uh, during COVID, they really had almost like a rebrand kind of where they oh. started to become a lot more helpful to people and a lot of businesses needed to utilize automation and needed to utilize chatbots in order to make their business more available to more people in other channels. Um, so that really has helped the growth a lot. So I suspect that you will start to hear more about it, um, you know, in the coming years, if you haven't in the past year or two, but certainly 2017 to, you know, 2020, it was definitely a dark age of chatbots. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I found that there's a lot of uh, interesting businesses that kind of revamped after COVID, which is always interesting, right? In every crisis, you have a lot of things going wrong and a lot of people going out of business. But then you all also have a lot of business kind of booming. And uh, it's, it's good to know that Chatbot's uh, business was one of them. Yeah, it definitely was something and all across, you know, chatbots, SMS, voice, all things sort of in that automation, conversational AI space. I think mm -hmm. we saw a lot of businesses recognizing the efficiency that it could bring to them. And so because of that, you know, they definitely wanted to jump on board and invest in this technology. Okay, really interesting. So I guess to, to kick things off and uh, for, for our conversation. I would love also to hear a little bit from you, from your background. So would you mind introducing yourself uh, to our listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Hilary Black. And as you said, I am a conversation designer, entrepreneur, uh, content creator, etc, etc. Uh, but my background is actually in social media. And so I started working in social media as a community manager, strategist in about like 2010. So at the very beginnings of sort of brands getting onto social media and wanting to use it for business. Um, so I worked in that industry for a bunch of different brands like uh, Beats by Dre, University of Michigan. And then up until 2016, my last role was at Vine, the app. Um, and I was the social media manager there. Cool. So through all of this, I sort of learned a lot about, you know, content creation, a lot about writing for social media and a lot about brand building. Um, and then, as I said, my last job was at Vine, which, as uh, people might know, shut down um, at the end of 2016. So Vine was like the YouTube kind of similar to YouTube, right? It was like TikTok. It basically is mm. TikTok, except for um, a different app. That, and it was owned by Twitter. So it was, you know, the six second videos, short form looping videos owned by Twitter. And I had worked yeah. there um, for about a year. So 2015 to 2016. Right. Yeah, it was a huge company. I remember uh, watching a lot of videos there. 
Yeah, yeah, especially because of the connection to Twitter, you know, people would share the videos there. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of sports and a lot of comedy videos and a lot of uh, YouTube and TikTok creators, I think, kind of originated there. Okay, okay. So you worked there as a social media manager? Yes, I did. And so when the app shut down, um, I lost my job and I had no job. And I sort of was always curious about having my own business. Um, And I was always, you know, afraid to sort of go out there. It is very scary to put yourself out there. But I was like, I am kind of just sick of jumping from job to job, doing the same things all the time. I want to have more freedom and more flexibility to have more say in the projects that I'm working on. So I decided to go full-time freelance as a social media manager, social media consultant. Um, And I started doing that. And through that, I started working with a company who was building mobile apps and websites uh, for just clients kind of all over the world. And around 2017, uh, Facebook Messenger announced that they were bringing chatbots to Facebook. Mm -hmm. And because I was working with this company and I was managing their social media, they were sort of like, hey, this is on Facebook Messenger. We want to have this chatbot. Can you help us with that? And I was like, sure, you know, I know how to write a Facebook post, a Facebook message, so I can learn how to write a conversation um, and and have like an engaging conversation with a customer. And so that was my first uh, experience in conversation design and my first experience uh, creating a chatbot. And I, like you, I never had heard of this before. I didn't know what it was. And at that time, you know, it's the brand new feature on Facebook. So everyone is trying to get on this. Um, We had a lot of customers coming to us, uh, like big enterprise brands wanting us to build these chatbots. And so I sort of just fell into conversation design and learned that it was called conversation design. Um, And from there, I started just like fully investing in it, you know, sort of getting away from doing social media, moving more towards that, started my community. And, um, you know, a year late, two years later, I created an online course, um, you know, still growing my community. A few years after that, I um, started a job board specifically for conversation designers. So it really has just grown over Mm -hmm. the last, I believe, six years. Um, And yeah, the rest is sort of history, I guess. Yeah. No, it's it's very interesting. And at the moment, you you live fully from your uh, from your projects, from your business. Yes. Yeah, so I have um, you know several different businesses. So I split kind of between entrepreneurship of these companies that I have like a product company. And then I also have, I guess, a few product companies. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I still do some freelance on the side from anything from social media consulting still to uh, content creation for brands, um, like as sort of like an influencer within conversation design, um, Mm -hmm. a very niche sub-community, and then some consulting for other outside companies outside of my own that just want general advice about conversational AI. So I'm like sort of full-time entrepreneur, sort of full-time freelancer. That's a lot of different projects going on. How, how do you manage your time? Like, do you say, okay, Mondays is for this and Tuesdays for that? Or how do you manage it? Um, it is a lot of projects and I think I, that's what I sort of love about working for myself is, is getting to do that. I do try to balance it of say, you know, Monday is my day where I have all of my meetings or, you know, Monday and Friday is my day that I work on my social media client. And then this other day is that, but as you know, things Mm -hmm. move around a lot and, and it's very difficult to sort of have such a strict schedule. Right. So I think I tend to more just work on things um, as I feel like it, which isn't really the best strategy, but creating deadlines and having things be, you know, doing the most important work first. I think it's kind of more figuring out your work style and then also realizing that this is kind of like the struggle of entrepreneurship. There's always work that still needs to be done. And every single day Mm -hmm. you'll end the day, no matter if you end at three at five at midnight, there always is going to be more work that needs to be done. So kind of accepting that and saying, I can wait until tomorrow to do this um, is something that I have just had to learn over the years. Yeah. 
Was it hard to to get a lesson? Because I, I'm in the same situation, you know. I'm also bootstrapping my projects. I have the podcast. I have the community. I have so many things going on. And I always feel that I could have done more, right? Exactly what you say. There's always work to be done. And there's there's no boss telling you, okay, you can stop now. Or there's no planning. You have to do everything. Um, was it hard to, to reach that point to say, okay, now it's time to sleep and rest and be with friends? Yes, it is hard. And I don't want to say that I fully have reached the point because it mm -hmm. is, you know, especially when you go on places like Twitter and you see everyone's doing all these things and it sort of seems like everyone is doing more work than you all the time. So it's sort of just uh, being okay with not fully, I guess, accepting yourself of saying, I might not feel like I have done all of the work, but I've done as much as I can to the best of my abilities. And that's really all that I can ask for. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly kind of repeating those things to yourself and realizing that you need to be at your best in order to actually do the work. So right. in order to have the right energy to work on these really big things, um, I definitely know how important that is, especially running so many different types of companies and so many different types of mm -hmm. areas. But when I'm feeling more low energy, I can work on, you know, the smaller tasks and things like that. So it's really like finding the balance for you, but also just accepting yourself almost with blinders on of not looking at what everyone else is doing because yeah. you also don't know how burnt out other people feel, right? Exactly. Did you ever have a problem like that, like burnt out or feeling really low? Oh, yeah. I feel like my life is constantly sort of the cycle of having to do a really big project, needing to get that done, feeling like you're at your end and you still have to get there. Um, but it's really important to sort of prevent that because it's a bigger problem to be burnt out than it is to sort of yeah. take a small break or, you know, end early one day. Like it definitely is a bigger problem to not be able to work for weeks or just yeah. not feel inspired to work on your projects like that is a huge problem you're you are your biggest asset in the end right so if you are not okay then it doesn't matter any other kpi or your business or your clients because you won't be able to do anything exactly you can't make money if you are burnt out um you can't keep going and everything suffers like i just try to remind myself you know the creative work suffers the content suffers the work suffers mm -hmm. if you are suffering so just sort of i think people are becoming uh more accepting to needing that rest but it's certainly a culture of certain types of entrepreneurs to not prioritize that yeah yeah I think it also comes with experience. When you first start your entrepreneurship career, you just want to do everything and then you realize, okay, that's not possible. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely used to stay up really late at night working on things and, and feeling like, you know, I didn't want to stop, especially when you're passionate about it, right? Yeah, you want yeah. to keep doing it. It excites you. But you sort of have to realize, hey, I need to make sure I'm checking all these boxes of the bare minimum, sleep, eating, exercise, etc. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, in the bootstrapping world, we're always, uh, we have this uh, running joke, which is that uh, bootstrappers always forget to do marketing. Uh, mm -hmm. but, it, but it's interesting because you are an expert in, in social media and... I don't know, for me, at least when I first started with Twitter, I, I felt really addicted to it. I, I, I'm always, and sometimes I still feel like that, you know, always checking the notifications, waking up, that's the first thing I do. As a social media manager, like, it's your job, or it was at least, or it still is a little bit your job to, to manage many uh, social media accounts. How, how do you manage not to become addicted to it? Well, it's interesting, and I feel that a lot of social media people get this way, is that I spend a lot of time doing it for others, so I spend a lot less time doing it for myself, and there are a lot of things that I want to share and do, but I don't necessarily have um, the prioritization to do it when it's not um, income generating. You know, there's a lot of tasks that are not 
building towards earning income and they are sort of just passions or interests. Um, But so just remembering that, that, you know, just going on Twitter and scrolling and scrolling forever, which is addicting, it's designed to be addicting, you know, they want Mm -hmm. you to spend all of your time there. Um, sometimes it's really not helping you. And if you can limit it, or if you can, uh, just go there when you feel that you need inspiration or you want community or you want to talk to people, but also realizing that this isn't really doing anything for you. Um, and you have other things that you should be doing. Right. Right. So when you're working for others, you consider it more a job and you don't, get somehow addicted or always looking to see if you if your previous post got more than x likes or something it's definitely something that i need to look at of course to make sure that my clients uh posts are performing and things like that but it Mm. is very easy to fall into that cycle of saying we're not getting likes we're not doing this but to me it's sort of like once you push publish you've done all that you can do. There's Mm -hmm. not really anything you can control to make that perform better. So it's almost just like you have to step away from it. Right. Yeah. So basically focus on the things you can control, right? And what you can't, don't focus about it. Don't worry too much about it. Yeah. Yeah, And you can control making your content better. You can control engaging with your community about other things versus just, you know, refreshing your mentions or your likes or your real plays or anything like that. That's not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, When when you're working um, as a social media manager, which platforms uh, were like your best platforms or the ones that use the most? Um, it's interesting because uh, most of the brands I worked for in the past, um, Twitter was more important to them than Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but especially Vine, we didn't even have an Instagram. Um, we mostly were just on Twitter and Tumblr and every brand is certainly very different. I will say for, you know, B2B businesses, which is what my products are now, or even mm-hmm. in conversation design space, LinkedIn is way more important to me than any of the other channels. Okay. Um, and I think that LinkedIn, I always will say this, which is like the most nerdy, unpopular opinion, is that LinkedIn is the best social channel. I like it the most really? of anything. Yes, I love LinkedIn. And even for entrepreneurs, too, there's so much there and people are going there to talk about work and business versus Mm -hmm. the other channels people are going there to be entertained or they're being there to be you know educated informed there's just a lot on linkedin and i think that it is my secret channel that i just love (laughs) so much how do you use linkedin to grow your business what are your tips uh certainly having a presence i think similar to even an instagram where you might have a business profile or company page on linkedin but the place that's going to get the most engagement is your personal profile so just using all the features available to you everything from writing articles to posting to commenting messaging uh writing these like longer form posts doing videos, doing LinkedIn Live. There's just a lot of features there. So kind of figuring out what your audience likes. But for me personally, it's just posting and commenting um, and having, you know, groups and things like that. And that's where I can discover new people in my industry. So I can discover people who are going to join my community. I can discover people who might benefit from my service. And it's just a really good way to find your target audience. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot easier and people are more familiar with connecting there for those purposes versus Twitter. You know, it's kind of hit or miss whether or not people are open to talking about business there. Yeah. And Twitter takes a lot of our time, I feel like. Uh, I'm always, I have so much scheduled content for Twitter because I don't want to miss a day without having a tweet or two tweets or three. So it really consumes a lot of my time. And it's definitely, I think for me now is my second main source of uh, users. So Mm -hmm. Indie Hackers is the first one. uh, And then Twitter is the second one. But those are the ones that I focus the most anyways. Uh, Yeah, and LinkedIn sometimes... I feel there are certain posts that I post and they have a lot of, uh, at least they show a lot of views. Uh, but sometimes I also post and they are complete myths and I have no one <laughs> liking yeah. or engaging with it. But isn't that the same for Twitter or for Instagram or yeah, any yeah. channel, you know, like some are hits and some are misses. And certainly I've learned a few things, which I think people on Twitter have learned how to yeah. get that engagement so that you can get seen by more people 
but it really is just consistency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you also mentioned that uh, you, you run a community. Um, when I was doing a little bit of a research uh, about, about you, I saw that you have actually, at least it seems, two communities, one on Facebook with about 2,300 members and another one uh, on Twitter, actually, using the, the new Twitter feature with communities. Is that uh, only it or do you have some other uh, forums? Uh, those are my main communities that I have. Okay. I do have a LinkedIn group that is specific to like a piece of content. So there's like a daily challenge where people post um, their results in the LinkedIn group. But that's something okay. that's, I guess, like more specific purpose. But my Facebook community and my new Twitter community are both just for networking. Okay. So... People that join these communities, do they pay you? Are they paid communities? They are not. They are free communities. Okay. W why? Um, I don't know. I think that I started my Facebook community back in um, when I first got into chatbots. So I had been maybe a conversation designer for a couple of months. And then it was sort of, are there other people out there that are like me? Um, so mm. I just... Started the group not really knowing if anyone would join. Um, and over the years, a lot more people have joined. Um, and so I always have thought of the idea of saying, like, should I make this into a membership community that's on a different platform that's not Facebook? Um, and to me, it's sort of, I don't like the idea of having people needing to pay to be there, especially mm -hmm. when they didn't used to have to pay to be there. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, I want that sort of interest for people who don't know what this career is to feel comfortable joining. But then on the other hand as well, if you make something paid, there's an expectation that comes that you're going to be super active, that you're going to be providing all this value, yeah. um, that you're going to be there all the time. And it's not a place that I can be all the time, but right. it is just a place that I genuinely love to be. I love to just have communities. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure I could go that way, but I just never have uh, felt that it was the right decision for that particular community to yeah. have it be paid. Um, and the Twitter community, I was sort of like, this is a new feature. I want to try it. <laughs> um, and I get a lot of messages from people saying that they aren't on Facebook. So I really wanted a place where people could go that aren't on Facebook. Um, so that one is newer and smaller, but it still is uh, very exciting to have that new space. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this, this uh, Twitter community. So you tried it out. You have 138 members. Is it a cool feature? Because, you know, I see Twitter now, they're launching so many features. But yeah, then I, know, I noticed, I noticed that, that they are not that good sometimes, <laughs> that they could be improved. Even even the spaces, for instance, I tried to do a space before. And I mean, it's a lot of things just didn't work properly. So how is it with, uh, with this uh, community on Twitter? It's very interesting, especially um, previously working for a social platform where sub-communities were very popular. So on Vine, there were several sort of like channels that were around sub communities from everything from k-pop to you know anime to music to all different types of things um and so seeing people sort of gather there is something that i've always noticed on twitter and you sort of will see that there's a lot of people who are in particular you know marketing communities or mark they post marketing content and then you sort of get like sandboxed and you feel that every person following me only follows me for marketing. They only care about marketing, but I care about other stuff too. Right. Um, so it becomes difficult. And for someone like me, who I have a lot of interests and I have mm -hmm. a wide variety of, you know, background and things like that, I want to use Twitter to post about whatever I want, whenever I want. So it is nice to have this entirely different timeline where it's only about that. So people who especially people who are in my other communities that, you know, they're liking that they can go on Facebook and just consume this people who are conversation designers, but you know, they're working a nine to five job. They only think about conversation design then, and then they go on and live their life. They can still participate. And so it's very exciting to be able to have a place where mm -hmm. that stuff is all grouped together. Um, 
certainly it's still an early feature and there are improvements that I would make if I was working on this product. Um, But I do think that they are going in the right direction by like leaning into this sub community idea. And I hope that they keep it around um, because as we've seen with, you know, every social network, they sort of introduce things and then take them away. So I hope that this will be one that sticks around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people can follow this community without following you. Correct. So right Mm. now, the one thing I wish would change is you can only invite someone via direct message. So I have to invite them. I can send them the link, Mm. but I notice that people join more when they are invited versus just when they come across it. Um, But yeah, people, a lot of people in there don't follow me. So it's also a good way to not have to follow a lot of people about a specific topic that you might be interested in, even that doesn't have to do with your job. If you like a certain TV show, you know, you don't want to follow 100 accounts because that will crowd your main feed. But if you had an entire place to go that was only about that, that you could consume when you want, um, that is very interesting. Definitely. I just joined the community, by the way. I'm curious now. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) Check it out. To check check what this is. And so I guess you also use um, your communities. I I was asking all of this because I have, uh, well, my main uh, source of income now is a paid community uh, for Mm -hmm. bootstrappers. But in your case, being um, a free one, you use it mainly, I guess, as a marketing channel for the products that are actually making you money, right? So your job board, I assume... Uh, consultancy, all of that? Yeah. So the main way that I, when I started my community, I just want to say first, I didn't have a plan for how am I going to make this a business. Um, And I think that it's, it's often something that entrepreneurs want to know how they can make everything a business. Uh So I started it just for fun. And through that, you know, once I had um, my course and I've done, you know, a few events and workshops and things like that, I really have spent a lot of years building these trusts with these people that I'm saying, I'm giving you all this content for free. I am giving you basically unlimited access to me for free. Um, And so I've built a lot of strong relationships on trust with these people. So now they are a lot more likely to join other communities to, you know, sign up for things to recommend me. And then most importantly, my other source of income for my conversation design community is my job board. So when I launched that and I say, I need conversation designers to create candidate profiles on here, um, you know, there's hundreds of people who are ready to do that. And that's something that allows me to still not have to charge them money to show up, but I can in turn charge businesses to show up, which is something that I'm a lot more interested in of charging the companies versus charging the individuals. Mm-hmm. The the community, at least the one on Facebook, more than 2000 members. It's, it's probably, I don't know. Do, do you have any problems managing this community? Some people spamming, uh, some haters there. Do you have anything <laughs> like that? I'm sure I have haters that have not revealed themselves to <laughs> me. Um, and I do have occasionally spam, but I do think that it might be the size of the community. It might be the specific topic, but people really are there to learn and they also are there to ask questions. So we don't get a ton of engagement because the unfortunate thing about Facebook groups is that you still have to fight their algorithm. So I could post something and these people have all opted in to want to see it, but they're Mm -hmm. not going to see it. So I still only reach, you know, 10% of the people, which is really unfortunate. Um, But people go there to ask questions about their work and their job. And so it's kind of a place where people don't have anywhere else that they can go ask these questions. Uh, So that's why I think we get so many people. And then a lot of people come in because they've consumed a piece of my content somewhere else. Um, They've Mm -hmm. gone on my YouTube and watched a webinar replay or they have, you know, gone to a panel that I was on a podcast or anything like that. So that's how a lot of people get in there, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You you just spoke about something that uh very very interesting for me, which is the algorithm, the social mm-hmm. media algorithms. Uh and especially in the beginning I was always very against it because I didn't want to 
you know, constantly fight against algorithm and figure out. So at, at some point I felt that I, I was not creating content for people. I was creating content for this algorithm that was, yeah, of course, created by people. But, you know, I don't know. I felt that a lot of the content nowadays is kind of shit, you know, on YouTube and this kind of stuff. It's like this very short, not that interesting uh, content, but it just sells a lot. Uh, I would love to, to hear your take as a, a social media manager. Like, what do you think of, of the algorithms, how, how this is evolving? Is this beneficial or or not for, for, the, for social media and for humans in general? <laughs> well, it definitely has changed a lot. Like I said, I got into social media management in 2010 when there weren't even Facebook pages. It was like Facebook profiles. Um, so there definitely has been a lot of changes and I have seen the engagement go down and down and down over the years, which is really unfortunate. And especially when you're talking about managing client expectations, it's very difficult to say, I have no control over how this is going to be received and we could put out something that is absolutely amazing and it couldn't go anywhere just because of the algorithm and, Obviously, there are things that you can do, like you're saying, you know, you can put out the certain type of content that the algorithm wants you to. Uh, but even if you do, sometimes that still doesn't perform yeah, well. So yeah. that's very difficult. And I just was reading um, an article yesterday that was saying people don't want to watch reels. Like, why do they keep pushing these on people? And it's sort of like I always just think of it as. Facebook is a business and their business is to make money and their business is to charge businesses to, you know, show up in front of the people they want to show up in front of. I don't necessarily think that they're prioritizing the user experience as it relates to getting their content seen. What they're prioritizing is amount of content that there is there. So they almost want you probably to not do very well so that you publish more content. And then what is going to generate the most revenue for them as it relates to ads, as it relates to, you know, businesses trying to target people. So the more they can get people sort of like interacting there, the more they can charge businesses to show up in front of them. And so Mm -hmm. as engagement goes down, the amount that brands are spending to get their content seen and to get their ads seen is going up, which is actually what they do want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is is this uh, fair? (laughs) I mean, like I said, it's a business, so I don't know if fair is really um, what they want to be measured on. Certainly, do I wish that organic engagement was better? Yes, I think that as we've seen over the years, social media has had such a negative effect on people's mental health, on development in younger people. And I think a lot of that has to do with the algorithm and a lot of it has to do with people spending all their time doing this or being very interested in it, publishing it. And then the platform is saying no one likes this when in fact, just no one has seen it. It's not that no one likes it. So I don't think that it's a good thing. And I think we've seen through all of the changes that, you know, governments are trying to make for these platforms is that they want that to change too, but Mm -hmm. it's hard for especially a young person to realize that it actually has nothing to do with them and it only has to do with this business. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know what's uh, really scary for me? What? Is when, I've noticed this already, like YouTube, uh, For I, I use YouTube a lot, I really enjoy that. And mm. they kind of, I don't know, it feels that they already have a path that will transform me into a subscriber of a certain channel. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because there was, for instance, uh, a musician that started popping up in my feed. And they first they just started with a very simple video. It's like maybe a 10 seconds or like 30 seconds video where uh, they said, this artist, uh, look what happens when someone or some phone rings in this artist's concert. And he kind of mimicked the, the sound. Uh, of the mm-hmm. tone of the, the phone. I was like, okay, this is really cool. And then they kept on showing me other videos. And in the end, I was like super addicted to this artist. And then I was asking a friend of mine, he's also like into music and so on. And he, I told him about this artist. He said, yeah, I'm also actually now uh, looking to this artist. It's like, what But what was your, your first uh, connection with the artist? And it was the exact same video, <laughs> the one with yeah. the phone. I was like, oh my God, they kind of figured out how to make you like a certain artist, how, how to, what should be the path, you know? To guide you yeah. towards become a fan. And it's, it's absurd for me, you know? Yeah, but at the same point, 
are you glad that you know about the artists versus not know about them? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so it does have its <laughs> positives in that way that yeah, yeah. I personally love, especially having worked at a video platform. I would love the content that was suggested to me. I love trying to find content. I love just trying to, you know, get the algorithm to be the best as possible for me. And I have tried to do that across other social channels is a lot of things that are getting recommended to you are because of the way that you're interacting with others. So as much as you don't want to control when you are favoriting something or not, um, it does in turn recommend other types of content to you because it's saying it's signifying that you like this. So I do find it very interesting if you spend time trying to curate your experience, it does work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it definitely works. But, uh, you know, yeah, in this case, I like the artist. But what if they make me like something that I didn't like in the beginning. I don't know. <laughs> it's a bit, yeah. A bit I mean, curious. certainly you know we I mean? all get recommended content, yeah. especially if you look at like your Instagram Explorer page, you get a lot of content on there that you don't care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's get into the conversational design. I think uh, um, we, we already chat a lot about social media and this is somehow connected, I guess. I, I'm also interested in, in knowing your opinion on that, but to start, what what is um, chatbot? Can you like describe uh, for the listeners? A chatbot is an automated virtual assistant or an intelligent virtual assistant, whatever you want to call it. It is an automated system that is interacting in a two-way experience with the user. So um, that's a very complicated way of saying that mm -hmm. it's a conversation where you're having a conversation with a machine instead of with a person. Um, and that conversation can be improved based on information that you have given in a previous conversation, on data that a company has on you, or just on general natural language. So it can be using you know, artificial intelligence to have a better conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And cool. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of, I guess, the the technical definition of a chatbot. And then people use that for anything from a business use case of qualifying someone for a service, of customer support, of serving up relevant content to someone based on what keywords they're putting in. There's a lot of different uses for it for businesses. When, when I first started seeing uh, chatbots, uh, I guess if I remember correctly, everyone was speaking about the idea of creating something that you wouldn't even recognize that uh, yeah. it's not a human. How far are we from uh, from this point? We're so far from that being really? a thing. Well, and also there's a lot, like it's a lot more complex than that too, because not only are we far away from that, it's actually not encouraged and not ethical to pretend that something is a human when it is a person. And in most of the United States, it's actually illegal to pretend that you are a person when you're an automated system. So hmm. I think that like the perception that it could be something that is like deceitful to people, um, that has done a lot of negative in terms of like the public opinion of trust of chatbots. Um, mm -hmm. But we definitely are technology wise. Um, we have a really, really long way to go in terms right. of you interacting with things like out in the world and not knowing that you're actually talking to a chatbot. Yeah. And why is that? What are, what are the biggest challenges uh, when, when coding a conversation with the bots? So the technology is actually probably the biggest challenge just because there is a lot that goes into, you know, when I'm describing it of it's an automated conversation, it sounds very simple, but there's a lot that goes into it in terms of the experience behind that and the technology that is powering it. So mm -hmm. when you're talking about, you know, natural language processing, um, the way that people talk is different everywhere in the world and the accents okay. that people use is different everywhere in the world. And so you're expecting that an automated system is using, you know, all this technology to understand every single instance of every single word in every single language and every single yeah. way that someone Someone pronounces it so that obviously is very complicated and so when you have something that's like very narrow scoped and you're saying this is what this experience is for if someone stays on track with that experience 
they will have a very natural free flowing conversation. Yeah. But a lot mm-hmm. of times it doesn't go that way. And the person tries to do something else. And then it sort of throws it off of saying, we didn't predict that you would want to talk about this. Right. So therefore there's no answer for me to give. Mm-hmm. And is, is the job of a conversation designer to predict this kind of uh, paths? Uh, it's part of the job. So it, the job is really twofold. Uh, first, uh, writing the dialogue that the chatbot is saying. So okay. what it's saying without, you know, the human trying to mess with it, you know, so saying, you know, hello, you know, welcome right. to Amazon or anything like yeah. that. Let, let's take a, a real a real example. Um, so let's say, what is the most used or the best use case for a chatbot in, in your opinion? Um, I personally think the best use case for a chatbot is to qualify someone for a service. What does that mean? Qualify someone? So that means, say you want to buy a house and right. you can interact with the chatbot and say, this is my budget. This is my, like where I want to live. This is my credit score. This is this. And then it will say you're qualified or not qualified. Okay. Got it. So let's say you, um, as a conversational designer, have this gig and you, you want to design a bot to qualify a person to, to buy a house. What, what are, you know, how do you do that? Like, what are your first steps? So the first steps is to, of course, understand what are all of those qualifications necessary for a person to qualify for the service. Um, But essentially what conversation designers will do is they'll look at the entire thing of saying a person's coming in here. We want them to get to here to the end goal. What are all the steps we need to go in between that? Right. And then what is the easiest way that we can have this conversation with the person? Whether mm-hmm. that is having the questions and the experience be short, it might be having it have buttons versus just asking them open-ended questions. Um, and then we'll sort of try to get all the information from the person um, through this back and forth interaction. So yeah. a lot of it is kind of simplifying the steps and simplifying the language as much as mm-hmm. possible in order to move the person through the conversation. So you really need to take your time to also understand the business, right? Yes, absolutely. Especially when you're doing these sort of like sales and marketing use cases, Um A lot of times businesses might be using a call center or an online form in order to do this information beforehand. And now you're taking that and turning it into a partially automated conversation. So definitely understanding the business. And that's why it's always sort of, you know, the first step is identifying what your goal is. So your goal is to return the answer of if a person is qualified or not qualified. Mm -hmm. And that's just it because you also are only wanting to measure yourself on what can be completed in the chatbot, not how many people are qualified. Because it's not up to you if a person is actually qualified. Mm-hmm. Them being not qualified is still completing the experience, if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, makes still sense. So you you have your goal, you have the information that you need, and then you design the best flow. Um, what, yes. what what details do you need to pay attention when designing this, uh, th- this best flow to get to see if the user is or not uh, qualified for buying a house? Uh, There are several things I would say are super important, but the most important thing is that it should be easy. And so it should be easy in the way that it feels natural, but also that you aren't making any of the questions sort of ambiguous. So the way that people talk, a lot of times there'll be these sort of like casual filler words or casual language where people don't realize that they actually end the end of their sentence with a question when they're not really asking a question. It's the same as how when I was talking to you, I said, if that makes sense, or I'll say, right, and that's sort of a question, but it's not really a question. Right. So you, you need to have those cases. You you need to, because you're not coding, right? You're, you're just, actually, yeah, that's, that's a great question. How do you deliver the work uh, to your employer? Like you're you're not coding, right? So you're you just have like a, a flow diagram or something like that. Yeah. So I personally am not coding. Some conversation designers will code, or there are mm-hmm. a lot of no code tools that you can use to actually create this experience beyond just the copy. But typically, what I would do is I would hand off a flow diagram, so like a flow chart 
plus all of the copy, which I actually just write in a Google spreadsheet. Um, mm-hmm. And I would hand that off to them because that will show them this is how this should work. And then it will also tell them this is the words that it should say. Um, and that's sort of the first part of just the experience. And then the other part that you were sort of asking about earlier is like the intense. So these are things that are more technology related and they are more um, predictive versus everything I've described up until this point is just about like rules. So it's just about if a person says this, they go here. If they say this, they go here. Mm -hmm. But there's all the in-between. So there's all the things that they could say or there's all the things that every single zip code is different in the entire world and you need to validate those zip codes are a correct zip code or phone number or things like that. So there's all those sort of background things that are done um, in other ways. Mm -hmm. And and it's part also of the job for you to put all of those exceptions uh, in the, in the material that you deliver. Yeah. So in almost all cases, you would also want to, create a scope for here's all the things that I want this chatbot to know. And there are some ways that you could sort of say validating a zip code is something that is uh, more of a technical feature. So you would say we need to validate if this is a real zip code. However, Mm -hmm. if it's not a real zip code, then you need to say, what are we going to say to this person if this is not Mm -hmm. a real zip code? Yeah. Well, it seems very complex. How long does it take for you to to design such a flow, like for instance, the one we just mentioned of qualifying some person? It depends on the complexity of the experience. And also it would depend on what I was sort of just describing of um, how many intents you are going to have. But I mean, it could take, and how experienced you are too, of course. Um, It could take anywhere from days to weeks, I'm sure, Mm. depending on, a lot of it is like how much information do you have up front? So do you have an entire sales script that you're essentially just copying over and making it more conversational or are you inventing everything from scratch? And that mm-hmm. could take a lot longer. Yeah. Is this like an entirely new thing? Um, and then how much like data or things are you collecting that fall in those sort of outside paths? So a lot of times if you're just chatting on a website and saying, do you want to book a demo? Yes. Like what day? A lot of those things can be kind of predetermined and you can almost borrow the like data and you can borrow the data sets from mm-hmm. other things. Uh, but a lot of it then will need to be created by either a conversation designer or there also are kind of like AI trainers or like people that work specifically to create those intent libraries. Um, and that could be a conversation designer or not. Yeah, yeah. So y- you said that it might take it weeks, right? So, um, how well, uh, how well paid is this kind of gig? When if someone asks you to do this, uh, will it cost a lot of money? Or like, what what is the budget that someone that wants to basically create a simple um, conversational design to qualify a, a potential client? Uh, what's the budget that one would spend? Well, typically, if someone is wanting to have something like that, they also will be wanting it to be implemented. So a lot of the like service angle of this would be a like full project. So you would just be saying, I want a a functioning qualifying chatbot on my website. Um, And that, again, can really range in terms of the the complexity of it, if you want it to be built on like your own platform, or if you want it to be built on another tool like mm-hmm. ManyChat or ChatFuel, um, those are things that are low cost or even free um, in order to actually deploy one of those and put it onto your website. Mm-hmm. So that can be a lot more um, low cost. Okay. Or if you want to have like a fully intelligent chatbot that knows that like something that's on like delta.com you know that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars i'm sure um let's take the the most simple example uh where you're just using a no-code tool or rather they will just um they just want you to create the flow they don't want Mm -hmm. the implementation uh what's the budget for that Yeah. So that say that, yeah, you're just hiring a freelance conversation designer to create the dialogue and then you're going to build it yourself. Um, That could be something that people would do. So, I mean, 
typically, depending on the amount of experience a conversation designer has, which, you know, as we sort of have touched on, this is a very new job. So a lot of Mm -hmm. people don't have a lot of experience. Um, It could be anywhere, I think, between probably like $45 an hour up to like $150 an hour if you're getting someone who's very experienced. But typically the range is more between, I'd say, like $45 to $65 an hour, um, which can equate to like... 70,000 US a year or more. Most of the roles are, I think, in between, yeah, like $55 to $65 an hour and $80,000 a year. Okay, got it. So, uh, this might be a little bit of a provocative question, but what is then the difference between implementing, let's, let's take the same use case when I'm qualifying someone, right? I could also just create a form on a website and ask them to fill in their answers and then calculate if they are qualified or not, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is the difference? Uh, or why is a chatbot, which probably is a, a more, more, more costly uh, implementation, um, why would it still be worth it to, to spend that extra money into a chatbot instead of a form? Sure. Um, And I do feel that the ranges that I'm giving are also could be for something that is even more complex. So a lot um, like the Delta one, that's customer service. So they have a lot more content in there. Um, They're trying Mm -hmm. to support a lot more than a small business, for example. Yeah. Um, So I do think and I would say that there's two main benefits to using chatbots, no matter what channel you're using them on. Um, And the number one benefit is that it saves you time. And so typically the form wouldn't necessarily be what it's replacing. And a lot of times it is, the forms are very long. Um, You know, the forms are a bit like archaic in how they are Mm -hmm. presenting the information, but a lot of times it's actually replacing a phone call instead So that's actually like human time and effort. Um, And that is some, or even a text message conversation, a non-automated text message conversation that is requiring a lot of time. It's taking away time from doing other things. And so that is very costly. And then it actually does factor in, um, you know, if you are doing this in an automated way, you're getting, you could either downsize your team, your team could be doing other things. um, And you just generally are saving a lot of efficiency by doing that. And then the second thing, which is a lot more particular to WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and SMS, is that if a person is filling out a web form and they close the tab, they are gone forever. You could send them an email, but emails, as we all know, get very low open rates. Mm -hmm. Um, And if a person is interacting with the chatbot and they close the browser, you can message them again and say, hey, do you want to continue? Um, And they can continue the conversation right then and there. Yeah. And that's something that we see a lot of people do. So these sort of re-engagement follow-up messages, these channels are all the most used apps on people's phone, like Messenger, mm-hmm. the Messenger app, the iMessage app, and WhatsApp are the most used apps on any phone. Yeah. So mm-hmm. people are going to open those. You know, they have like a 98% open rate versus an email has like 20% open rate. Yeah. So you are wow. able to get people through and just the general experience it's a lot easier for people to just have this text conversation than it is for them to sit down mm-hmm. fill out a form that might take them 30 to 40 minutes i'm convinced <laughs> makes it all sense <laughs> you know at the uh, i like this also comparison you're not comparing it with with a form you're comparing with a with a real conversation either a text message yeah exactly or a, with a, a sales rep and, yeah, with you, a you, you know anything like that yeah, if you put it in that perspective, then it, it, it makes sense to invest. And um, so, okay, let's say I, I'm I'm convinced, and I I want to to hire a conversational conversational designer, and I can go to your website, <laughs> which is another <laughs> yes. of your project. You have a job board, um, conversationdesignerjobs.com. Tell me more about this business, uh, how how it came to be, and. Uh, is it profitable? Was it hard to 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 assemble? Mm-hmm. How was it? Yeah. So the way that this business came to be is because I, as a person who has a community who is very active in the conversation design space, I was constantly receiving messages from conversation designers 
asking if I knew any leads about jobs, um, telling me that they were looking for a job. And then I was also constantly receiving messages from companies and from recruiters saying, hey, do you know any conversation designers? Because everyone knows, of course, yes, I know hundreds of them. Um, But I am not a recruiter and I am not trying to be a recruiter. And so I really saw this need for some place where these conversation designers could create a profile. And so we have these candidate profiles and then something that would be very specific to this particular niche. So the skills that are required to be a conversation designer, including tools, platforms, certifications, like hard skills, uh, soft skills, all of that, they're very different from the skills that are required to be like a UX writer or a growth marketing manager. And if you just post a job on LinkedIn, you have no way of filtering out people who don't have those skills. Um, Mm. So I decided to create this board where these candidates could select which skills that are only specific to conversation design and these platforms. And they could say, I have all these skills. A company could post a job and say, I'm looking for someone that has these skills and not these skills. Because a lot of times you know, certain companies, they work off of certain like agile, or they are trying to do a voice experience, not chat. And so there's people who are more qualified in different ways for those roles. Mm -hmm. So then um, the company posts a job, they get matched up instantly with these candidates, and the profiles are all like private. So you can only see them if you have been matched with a role. And then um, they can hire them. (laughs) So... (laughs) Yeah, so I launched it, I want to say it was um, January of 2021, and it was just honestly like a weekend project where I had sat down with my husband, who also works with me on all of these other ventures, Um, and I just said, I really want this job board, nothing out there has the features that I want, and that's sort of how like every idea for a company or a product that we have goes, where it's like, I want this thing, it doesn't exist, so let's make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made that and we just decided to, you know, work on it over like the holiday break and then launch it and, you know, get candidates to sign up. So I have, you know, people from my network that have signed up and then I have both jobs that companies have posted or I source jobs, you know, individually to make sure that we still have jobs on there and that it still is valuable to people regardless mm-hmm. of if a recruiter is posting in the job or if I'm right. posting it. So, so before launching, because in these kind of platforms, I feel there's the chicken and the egg uh, problem, right? So mm-hmm. you need jobs to get people, you need people to get companies wanting to advertise their jobs. So what you're, you have the advantage that you already have a community, right? You already have an audience of, of people. So did you first kind of populated your database with jobs that you sourced yourself and then showed it to the community? Or did you first try to get a community on board? What was the process? Um, so I did sort of both. When I launched it, I made sure that there were jobs that had been posted. Um, and while it would be valuable for recruiters to post a job on a board that has a specific niche audience of viewers, um, it's not as valuable as it is with the candidate profiles. So I definitely went towards getting the community on board to create these profiles, getting them on board to, you know, subscribe to job alerts. And I just made sure that I was sort of providing, um, you know, all of these job listings on a regular basis because there are a lot of them. Um, And so I had no problem being able to populate that from other sources, whether that's Google, LinkedIn, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then I also sent messages out to all of the people who had been messaging me, asking me for referrals. And so basically now if a person asks me for a referral, I instead direct them to this job board or the other way around. I will see a job posted on LinkedIn. I will message the person who's hiring and I'll say, hey, I noticed that you're hiring for a conversation designer. I have a targeted audience of 5,000 conversation designers that I would love to get this in front of. Um, it's sort of a no-brainer for them in that yeah, regard, right? Definitely. Yeah. And uh, how, how is it uh, going for it? Do you have a nice um, income stream coming from this project? It definitely has been slower, I would say. <laughs> um, and while I have like made some income off of it and especially for being more of a personal project, I would say that it um, is successful to me in that way, that it's like, you know, a few hundred or a thousand dollars here or there. 
Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely slower to getting people to post because it costs money. So, you know, it costs right. $200 and or uh, $195. And so it is more difficult in that way. And I also would say a personal challenge of mine is I'm not really great at selling. And that's probably why I do a lot of things for free is Mm -hmm. because, you know, getting in front of these people on a regular basis is something that I need to make sure that I do of constantly doing outreach to people posting jobs, but also just making people more generally aware. So that could be not through one-to-one messaging. It could be through content. It could be through podcasts. It could be through doing like webinars or doing panels. And I do a lot of other external things to make Mm -hmm. sure that people know about the board. And then the benefit of that too is, the candidates who have gotten jobs from it, which several people have gotten jobs from it, they also recommend it. So they'll recommend it both to candidates and to recruiters who Mm -hmm. message them. So it definitely is picking up. And I do think that it will continue to pick up um, Mm -hmm. as it goes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because as you said, now with COVID, everything got more digitalized. And uh, I don't know if you you know uh, who Peter Levels is. Mm Mm-mm. Peter Levels is a he's also a bootstrapper and he has a, a huge job board. Um, it's called uh, MotoK.com. He just recently after COVID, there was a he basically only shows remote jobs there, and yeah. uh, there's like tons and tons. Like there is revenue like tripled or something just after COVID. So um, I, I, yeah, it's definitely a market that is still growing. So there's the, that possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely a market that I find these sort of specialty roles, especially now that people can work remotely, you can hire people outside of your city. And so there's a lot more availability and capacity to hire people in other places of the world that you wouldn't necessarily meet unless you have a specialized audience. And so the people who have posted jobs um, and paid they have all been extremely happy Mm. with like the quality of the candidates because for them, they're going on LinkedIn and messaging a thousand people and getting maybe one or two messages back from someone who doesn't end up working out versus knowing that you're going to put your post in front of an audience of people who this is all that they do and they have these skills and Mm. all of that. Yeah. So at the moment, your main source of uh, revenue is more the consultancy part. So my main source of income, I would say, is our product company, which is in like the conversational AI space. So we have a platform that sales reps and that businesses can sign up for to get SMS chatbots um, for sales. So for qualifying, following up, et cetera. So that is sort of the main um, Hmm. project that I work on. And that's the main like source. And that started as a consultancy and then sort of pivoted into product as we kind of just validated what we wanted to work on. And then secondly, it is um, consulting both social media and then um, in conversation design, I would say my online course is also um, a pretty big source. Hmm. And then some like, coaching and like little things and that as yeah. well so you have a lot of uh projects that actually bring you money right so that's really interesting yeah of course, uh, yeah it's good because you know you don't have to entirely rely on one thing but it also yeah. um is a bit complicated to work on so many different things at once yeah yeah can you imagine um and I guess the advantage of the job board and the, the company and the course is it's kind of passive income, right? So, I mean, you still have to maintain it, but uh, it's not totally connected with the, your hours of work, whereas maybe consultancy, I mean, if you don't work, you don't get uh, any any pay, payment, right? Yeah, exactly. And my course is, you know, I created the course uh, two years ago this month, and I still am making, you know, thousands of dollars each quarter from it, from having to do it once. So that yeah. is definitely, okay. um, you know, I, of course, promote it every place that I go, but I'm going these other places anyways. So it works um, mm-hmm. both in that way. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that you have a lot of multiple projects, but all of them around conversational design. So you can, they kind of all point to each other. Yes, so exactly. You have the free community, then you have the uh, job board, then you have your course, then you know you have all of this co- connecting with each other. So yeah, it's very very smart. Um, what wh- what are your next steps uh, in the in the twenty twenty two? What are you excited about? 
So my next step is my new project, which I have, you know, <laughs> been working on all of these projects. Um, but yeah, so that is definitely what I'm working on now, which is I started conversationdesignerjobs.com for myself. But in doing that, I realized that a lot of other people are in the exact same situation as me, where they have these communities, they have these networks, they are constantly getting messages from people. They're trying to keep their network of saying, you know, I know all of these professionals looking for roles. I know all these companies. Um, and so giving these people a platform where they can actually create their own job board for their own niche professional, and they can have these candidates and they can, uh, you know, have this job board on their own. So that is um, what I'm working on now, which is, yeah, the platform that is powering my own job board that I made for my own self um, now is going to be available to other people. Cool. That's that's really smart. Uh, do you have already a name for it? Yes. The name is Career Club. Um, we will Career be Club. launching the marketing site hopefully this month, but it is careerclubhq.com and then everywhere on social is Career Club HQ. Really cool. And you said you work your, with your husband. Are you both then doing full-time entrepreneurship? Yes, we both do full-time entrepreneurship. He um, works on the conversational AI product. He's the mm -hmm. CEO of that company. And then he also has a few other smaller side projects that he does as well, in addition to Career Club. Cool. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, it's a Hillary busy was, household. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Uh, it's really interesting to learn more about all of these topics. And um, as as a last question for you, um, I, I would just uh, like to know where is like all of this energy coming for all of these projects, all all of this passion. Uh, what what keeps you going? I think what keeps me going really is the freedom of it. I think that's why a lot of people get into entrepreneurship is freedom, which could mean anything from financial freedom. It could mean free to spend your time a certain way. It can mean, you know, free flowing creativity. These are all things that are sort of like a core pillar to my life to my, mm -hmm. you know, family that we're saying we live by this, you know, principle of freedom. And so what we need to do to do that is to sort of design a life that works around that. And so being able to have our own companies and being able to have all these ventures is something that is so exciting to me because I'm not just doing the same thing every single day. I'm not just going to a job. And I've had a lot of jobs that were fun jobs that were impressive jobs, but they never really fulfilled me in that way because I was yeah. always doing, you know, what every other person wanted me to do. Yeah. No, I, I totally relate to that. Hillary, it was a, a pleasure to speak with you. I will link your Twitter profile and your projects in the show notes of this episode and anything you want me to, to link so the listener can just go to the show notes and check it out. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. Yeah, same, same for me. And um, for the listener now... If uh, you want to hear from other entrepreneurs, other bootstrappers, make sure to go to wannabe-entrepreneur.com and uh, you'll have interviewed a lot of people about their journey. And if you are a bootstrapper and you want to find a community of like-minded people, you should join us also in the WB space. We are all there working together, supporting each other in our projects, and it's really, really fun. This was another Wannabe Entrepreneur. See you next time. <laughs>